If you're in Psalm 8 tonight, our goal is to get through 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12. Probably a good place to start is again mentioning when Jesus said the volume of the book is about him, you really don't realize just how uh, much the Lord meant that. Because as we get into the Psalms, Psalm 8, like Psalm 2, is what we call a messianic psalm in that three times in the New Testament, we're going to have quotes from Psalm 8. And that's going to be my job tonight. I like Wednesday nights. They're a little bit more laid back. We can, I can take you to the New Testament and show you exactly where they tie into the psalm. And so we'll make our way slowly. Then on Sunday, I want to come back here. And um, I've already have Sunday's message entitled, Waiting for Redemption. So with all that's going on right now, there really is a light at the end of the tunnel. All these things that we see happening have to happen. Matter of fact, they're foretold. They're sort of signposts to um, say, you know, set up, look up. Uh, your redemption is drawing nigh. But these things have to happen. And now we're watching that happen. But Psalm 8 is uh, unique in that it is a messianic psalm. I'm, I've asked Mary to get this to the worship team for Sunday because we know the first and the last verse Psalm 8 is only um, nine verses long. It begins and ends with the same verse. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. And so Psalm 8 is, again, messianic. Um, Verse 2, Jesus is going to quote in Matthew 21, but let's read it first of all. You've heard it from the New Testament. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have ordained strength. And because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. Um, We are actually, I'll say a couple things about Psalm 2. First of all, make your way to Matthew chapter 21. The avenger is a reference to Satan, but also, as we're going to see, This is going to tie into the Great Tribulation period. 9 through 13 actually talks about um, the Great Tribulation. And in the context here, it's spoken against out of the mouth of babes is tied into the enemies of Israel. In Matthew 21, picking it up, verse 12, the, the, the setting would have been getting very, very close to Jesus' last week. When we teach through the last week of the Lord on, on um, here, we begin with Palm Sunday usually. And then I'll mention what happened on Monday and Tuesday. Well, this would have been what would have happened. Palm Sunday would have been uh, verses 1 through 10. And um, Monday, according to the other scriptures, were. It talks about him going out and then coming back the next day. So this is probably taking place on Monday. This would have been the week of the crucifixion. Uh, Verse 12, then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out those who bought and sold in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, It is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. 
And after he said that, so that's a pretty dramatic scene here, the side of the Lord where he makes a whip and he takes charge and he just cleans house, basically. He turns the, the tables over. And um, he's definitely upset. And uh, the Bible says, be angry but sin not. He's definitely angry here. Um, I don't know if we still have it in our welcomes packet, but we actually have something written up uh, for people who might want to come to church for alternative reasons. <laughs> Maybe meeting you for a business opportunity. Let's just put it that way. And they're here. So we actually have in our welcome packet, you know, that we really come here for, for really two reasons. Well, maybe three. We come here to um, uh, fellowship with each other. We know our friends. We know our brothers and sisters in the Lord. We come here to worship the Lord in worship. And then we come here to study this book. That's what we're here for. And we try to explain this in a welcome packet. That's why we're here. And if you're here for any other reason, that would be alternative for that, that might bring you into an arrangement or association or affiliation with another person. And you'll have alternative motives. Well, I want to clip that, nip that in the bug even before you start thinking about it. We give, give it to you in a welcome packet. Uh, because that's what's happening here. Uh, the religious leaders had alternative motives for making money. Buck on the side, and they were doing it in the house of the Lord. And after he gets done cleaning house, we find in verse 14, the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. So after this, the show, we have the poor, the needy, that were always attracted to the Lord, but when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and notice the children crying out in the temple saying, now we actually have small children, and they said, Hosanna to the son of David, and they were indignant. So they were getting upset at the little kids. We had a business meeting here, not a business meeting, I just said we don't do business, right? <laughs> We had, an, we had a, a meeting for our trip to Israel several weeks ago. And, um, you know, it's without exception after the second service, after everybody's gone, this place becomes the biggest room you can run in in the entire church building. And if you're this tall and younger, this is where you're at and this is where it's happening. You can hide underneath the pews. You can go over the pews. This is when the church becomes Pentecostal and they really do jump over the pews and on the pews and around the pews and they're screaming real loud. And um, usually I let it go, you know. Kids, you let kids be kids. But I was trying to talk, so I actually pulled one of them aside, come sit down right here. And uh, it took them three chances to get them to sit. And then when the other guys saw that I was serious about we needed to talk right now and they couldn't do this, well, then... That got rid of that problem for, for that while. But it was something about the Lord that, um, you know, they were drawn to Jesus. And we find here that the children in the temple were actually saying, Hosanna to the son of David, but they were indignant. And he said to them, now Jesus is responding to the self-righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And he says, this is how he responds, do you not hear what they're saying? And Jesus said to them, yeah, have you never read? And now he quotes Psalm 8. 
Have you never read out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have perfected praise? You have the faith of a little child. You know, you tell, you tell your kids about Santa Claus and you, you're heartbroken the day you find out it's not true. <laughs> Why? Because you have the faith to believe. If that's what mom and dad tells me, that's how those presents get under the tree. Well, that's, you, you buy that hook, light, and sinker. And there's this openness and transparency that's so real with little kids. You don't have to wonder. They'll tell you exactly what they're thinking. And they'll say things uh, that are very awkward <laughs> with your friends because they're, they, they're just open. They're just, there it is. It's out. <laughs> and so it, here Jesus pulls Psalm 8, and it's a prophecy. He says, have you never heard where it's said out of, out of the mouth of babes? And he pulls out, and this is one of the places where Jesus uh, is fulfilling Scripture, and he's saying this is a context that is in. When David wrote that, this was to be happening this week. This was the week and um, the final week that Jesus was going to be on this planet. Uh, now, in the morning, as he returned to the, the city, he was hungry. So we have, again, the next day. Let me show you the second time Psalm 8 appears. Have you turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Picking it up in verse so, uh, 25. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 15, of course, is the, um, the resurrection. Uh, Paul is addressing it because there were actually, in verse 12, the reason he's doing it, it says there's some here that says there is no resurrection of the dead. <laughs> Paul says if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. Everything we're doing here tonight, my preaching is in vain. You being here is in vain. We're, and uh, if Christ isn't risen, um, this is all futile. You're still in your sins. Verse 18, those who have fallen asleep in Christ, they've perished. We have no hope for them. I like this verse 18. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are men most pitiable and uh, miserable. If it's, there's no resurrection, then we're all wasting our time and, and we should be doing something else. On the other hand, if there is a resurrection and Christ is risen from the dead, then there's nothing more important than you can do with your life than to explain that to somebody else because the resurrection is everything. And so all of the chapters really about the resurrection, um, and beginning with verse 30, Paul lays out the order of the first fruits of the resurrection and who it was that really was the first one to come back from the dead. And he is talking about Christ in verse 20 being the first fruits. The first fruit simply means he was the first one. You say, hold on a second, Dwight. What about Lazarus? What about the guy Elijah raised from the dead? What about those guys? Well, the difference is they lived again, but they also died again. Lazarus, after being resurrected, had to go back and go through that pain and suffering all over again. The first one who ever was resurrected with a resurrected body was the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what verse 20 is saying. Beginning with the first fruits, the order is Jesus first. And then those who have fallen asleep. 
the word death after this verse is never used, after the, after the resurrection, the word death is never used for a believer. It's always fallen asleep because you never die. Second um, Corinthians 5 says to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. It is an immediate translation just like the rapture in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. It's going to happen that quick. And the way things are going, I mean, I'm looking at the clouds awful careful these days, the way things are going on. Because if the signs of Ezekiel 38 are all around us, how close is the rapture? So the order is Jesus was the first. The resurrection and the first fruits of the resurrection has been taking place since Jesus died. So that Stephen, after... um, um, you know, after we get through uh, Jesus' resurrection, we have Stephen being martyred. Um, and I, I think I pointed this out on Sunday as they were stoning him. After he preached the gospel to him, he says he looked up and he saw Jesus. And, um, and then it says he fell asleep. Isn't that what it says? It says he fell asleep. Well, they stoned him. I mean, that's what hung over Paul's head for how many years? That. He couldn't believe that he did that to the church, that he persecuted the church. That's what Paul lived with. But it's interesting to me that it says he fell asleep, but we know that he died. And yet he says, I see Jesus. So you think he's in limbo somewhere or some soul sleep somewhere? No. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. When he saw Jesus standing up, he knew he was going from point A to point B. And it was going to happen just, just that quickly. All right, uh, so as we follow the progression here, if you pick it up, oh, down in verse 24, 25, it talks about finally getting towards the end. Let's go to 24. Then comes the end. After Jesus comes back, establishes his kingdom, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and all power, for he must reign till he puts all enemies under his feet, and the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Now, verse 27 is in Psalm 8. That he has put all things under his feet, but when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is, is expected Now when all things are made subject to him, and they're not right now, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who puts all things under him that God may be all in all. We begin with the resurrection. We go through the first fruits of of all Christians that have lived in the last 2,000 years. And it skips talking about uh, the tribulation, but we go right to the kingdom where the Lord establishes it, And we're going to have further clarification. Let me show you the third time Psalm 8 is mentioned in the New Testament. Go to the book of Hebrews, chapter 2. Hebrews 2. We're going to get into... um, um, So Hebrews 2... 
This is the third time. Let's pick it up. Uh, We'll read the 1 through 10. The writer says, I believe as Paul, therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things that we have heard, lest we drift away. Boy, there's one you can camp out on for a while. Uh, Taking the Bible seriously. If it says it, that's what it means. You don't have to add to it, take away from it. Give the most earnest heed to the things lest you would drift away. We call that backsliding. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? Now, that was passed on from the disciples, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles, and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. For he has not put the world to come, of which we speak, in subjection to angels. But one testifies in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him? or the son of man that you take care of him. That is Psalm 8, and that's where the writer here is pulling it out. And um, what he's establishing here is the fact that who he's turning everything over to is not just an angel, but the him is referring to Christ. You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. And you have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all things in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. And this is important that you get, so that you get the context. But we do not see all things put under him now. Jesus has gone to the cross. He has redeemed this planet. He has not taken possession of what he has purchased. What the writer is saying that is talking about all things are put under his feet. And it's not present tense. It's not right now. Um, That very first verse is prophetic, speaking about what's going to be, not what is right now. And, And the writer of Hebrews makes it clear here that we don't see that happening right now. We see a little girl in Israel living in Ashkelon telling us that there's uh, Hamas coming out of a tunnel right in her kibbutz. That's what we're hearing. Anti-Semitism at an all-new all type high. But we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God might taste death for everyone. All right, let's go back to Psalm 8. Those are the three places in um, the New Testament Again, what you want to grasp as we go through the Psalms is some of them are prophetic, messianic, and they have prophecy, and in this case, some of it is fulfilled. Matthew 21 was fulfilled when Jesus said, out of the mouth of babes, praise is perfected, out of little kids. That was fulfilled. The other one, where he talks about all things being put underneath him, are not. All right, so we made it all the way up to verse 2. Then in verse 3, David says, When I consider 
the heavens and the works of your fingers and the moon and the stars which you have ordained. What is man that you're mindful of him? So in verse, the first part of verse 4, you have, this is really Psalm 139, and David is blown away by, he says, Oh Lord, your thoughts towards me are more than the sands of the sea. When I wake in the morning, you're still thinking about me. Do you know that he's preoccupied with you? He's preoccupied in his love for you. We can't grasp that because that's just who he is. God is love, God is spirit, God is light. And he is uh, focused on this world, and he is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance and salvation. That's his will. But in order for this to work and have it be a two-way street, and that you would return that love to him, the choice has got to be made. There, it can't, you can't be forced into serving him. Somebody want to give me an amen on that? I mean, you're going to do it or you're not going to. You're going to do it because you want to or you don't. And Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians, unless you're motivated simply because you understand how much he loves you, that he wants that love to be given back to him. Free will. You, if you love someone, you do it of your own free will, not because you're forced to. And that's what we're, we're called to do. So when we read this here, this verse, this first one, David says, when I think about it, I think it's the, the complexity of this universe and the numbers of the stars, you call them by name and you count the hairs of my head. Know that he's thinking about you he says, what is man? Why do, you th- why do you think of us so much? Why are you mindful of him? But then it trans- goes at a transition from the thought being on you, and he says in the second part of it, and the son of man that you visit him, for you have made him, now this is what we was quoted in Hebrew, so that we know what we have in view here is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. You have made him, a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. Now that's not to be taken in the context of the here and now, or even during the writing of this psalm. Because Hebrews clearly says, quotes this verse, and then it says, but we don't see all things under his hand yet. Do we? I mean, go home, turn on the news. Is the world worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Or is the world all of a sudden changing and becoming very much focused as that's the problem in the world today? What's happening in the Middle East and there doesn't seem to be an answer or a solution to it. And bad guys seem to be this group of people. I'll tell you where it's, well, let me finish the psalm and then we'll get into that. Verse nine, you have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands, and you have put all things under his feet. Not yet. All sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish in the sea, that pass through the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. This is to be um, heralded, and it's fulfilled when the Lord will be (laughs) reigning over all the earth. In Zechariah, the last chapter, um, the horses are going to have bells on them, holiness to the Lord. And the whole world will be aware of this verse right here. 
And so what we have in the meantime is um, really the rise of, of uh, anti-Semitism. And uh, that's what we're getting into as we get into uh, verse 9, I mean chapter 9. So let's move on to 9 and 10. Let me tell you, first of all, that we have in our Bibles chapter 9 and chapter 10. Um, If we had the Latin Vulgate or the Septuagint, they they would be one psalm, not 9 and 10, just one together. And the reason being is, and what we don't see here, I explained it last week with Psalm 119, it's called an acrostic psalm. In other words, there's a clear order of the Hebrew alphabet of putting um, this together in a poetic form. So 9 and 10, both in the Latin Vulgate and the Septuagint, are just one psalm. It's like Psalm 119. It starts with the elf of the letter, and it goes all the way through all 22 letters. It's called an acrostic, or you might say uh, the alphabet, and it's poetry. So 9 and 10 are uh, verses, especially the first six verses here. This is a strong declaration of the judgment that is coming. So that what we see here in verses 9 and 10, the main thought is going to be a judgment that arises. Your, my subtitle says, The Death of a Son. How many of your Bible says that under 9? And a couple people, raise your hands, okay. A um, couple trains of thought um, in Psalm 9 and 10. And um, some think it's, a, it's a, the death of uh, David's son. Um, some think it was uh, the death of um, actually the killing of Goliath. One commentator believes that. But... Uh, What we have in view here is the psalmist makes it clear as we go through it that these are the enemies of Israel uh, that are to be eventually uh, conquered. It takes place at the beginning of uh, what I believe this is in reference to. The word, the death of a son, is really the death of a firstborn. And when you put it in that context and we keep it in judgment, if I say judgment and firstborn, what do you think of? Well, I go back to Egypt at the very beginning of anti-Semitism. Remember, the Bible says there rose up a pharaoh who knew not Joseph. Joseph had all this favoritism with the pharaoh. He was second in command because he had this dream that the pharaoh had about um, the seven years of famine. And, uh, you know, Joseph, having the, the gift of interpretation of dreams, saved the whole land, but also his whole family. And... Uh, you know, the whole thing is, I wish I could just sidetrack just talking about Joseph. He went through so much. I think it's Gene Getzer who has a book that's called From the Pit to the Pinnacle. And that's pretty much the story of Joseph's life. Being in the pit, betrayed by his brothers, but ending up, you know, the second most powerful man in the entire world. Well, after his death, it says there rose a pharaoh who knew not Joseph. And they caused such bitter bondage on the people that for the next 400 years they were, they were in this what the Bible calls bitter bondage until they cried for a deliverer. 
What we have, I think, in view here is the judgment of God judging the firstborn of Egypt. And I'll tell you straight out, there's good commentators out there that take a different view on, on who the son is here that, that David is writing about. But let's get into it. Uh, Psalm 9, I will praise you, O Lord, with my whole heart. I will tell you of all your marvelous works. I'll be glad and rejoice in you, and I'll sing praises to your name, O Lord Most High. When my enemies turn back, they shall fall and perish at your presence. For you have maintained my right and my cause. You sat on the throne judging in righteousness. You have rebuked the nations. You have destroyed the wicked. You have blotted out their names forever. O enemy, destructions are finished forever. And you have destroyed cities. Even their memories have perished. So in these, the first um, six verses here, um, if it is really <clears throat> Pharaoh, a type of the Antichrist, uh, seeking to annihilate the Jewish people, well, what do you have? Well, the birth of anti-Semitism. And I think it was the enemy way back then that uh, was after this group of people. If you, if you got the news bites at this time, take this out. Because I didn't know that these were our news bites and as I studied and realized where we were headed with this, I've been watching the news, and um, <clears throat> in Paris and in London, uh, it has risen to such, um, they're lining up to um, you know, cast their vote against the nation of Israel and what's happening right now. Um, this is really stirring the pot, and I was going to ask Mary to put something about this in the news bites, and she says, I already put one on your desk. Why don't you look at it? <laughs> and this is exactly what I was looking for. I wanted something to show you tonight to show you that what you see taking place in the Middle East today is nothing new. You can go back to Egypt. That's where it began. And no matter where you go throughout history, this is not about a, a war over land. Uh, we offered Yasser Arafat, if he wanted a two-state two, two solution, we've already offered him that. He got up and walked out. I was listening to an interview with the leader of Hamas just last night or the night before. And he said, what would it take, I mean, for, for you actually to settle and have peace? Are you willing just to acknowledge the existence of the state of Israel? And there was, this is what happened. It was like this. <laughs> no. But he thought about it for 10 or 15 seconds. He didn't know how else to get around the question, so he just answered it directly. And the reason for no, and the reason Yasser Arafat turned it down um, uh, before he died, is that's not the issue. And it's not even an, an issue over land. That's not the issue either. The big picture, if we look at it from this book and what we're reading here, is that the plan of the enemy is to destroy the people of Israel. This is the kingdom of heaven, Revelation 12, the devil and his angels that stood up and fought against the, well, let's just go there. And um, it's not in my notes, but it's not like me to get sidetracked, but we'll just go there and do it anyway. Chapter 12. 
War broke out in heaven, verse 7. And this is what's happening. When war breaks out in heaven, uh, the devil and his angels fought against uh, Michael and his angels. They did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the dragon was cast out, called the devil and Satan, who deceived the whole world. And he was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Now, great rejoicing. Then I heard a loud voice saying to heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ has come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God night and day has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of his testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and uh, you who dwell therein. But woe to the inhabitants of the earth, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows he has a short time. So the war is a spiritual battle. Daniel 10, again, talks about um, the prince of Persia. Interesting, that's called Iran, by the way. The prince of Persia, that would be the prince of Iran. Uh, implying that there's demonic authority over regions of the world. Again, in Revelation 14, we hear of demonic spirits going out to the kings of the east to stir them up, to bring them to the battle of Armageddon. So what you see taking place when you see these interviews, and it's all about one thing, and that is what their, their um, own declaration of Hamas is, and that is the destruction of the state of Israel, clear and simple. And anything else that you're hearing is just rhetoric and talk. And boy, could I get sidetracked here with just the atrocities that are being done with people who have been uh, brainwashed through this false doctrine called um, the, the Muslim faith or Islam. But behind it all, and this is what we have to have the big picture, is where does the devil focus his attention once he is cast down here? It's not that it's already not focused there. But in verse 13, when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he accused the woman, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the child. The woman, um, just so there's no doubt about that, some, and that's given to us in the first couple verses, uh, is, can only be the nation of Israel who gives birth to the Messiah. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And it only makes sense that when the devil comes down, he only has three and a half years. The church isn't even here. So those who say it's the church, a couple problems. This, the church is pregnant, number one. That'd be a problem. Unless you have Isaiah telling us, no, this is going to be born through a woman who's going to be a virgin. And so we have the idea here that it comes from Israel, and it's through Mary, but his focus now, knowing he's got a short time, is the nation of Israel. And that's the precursor of everything that's going on right now. All right, let's make our way back. 9 and 10. Again, according to the Septuagint and the Latin Vulgate, is an acrostic. And that simply means that it's one psalm, not two. The theme throughout is judgment. And in my opinion, these passages um, are twofold. Verse 7 and 8, uh, in the next passage, the kingdom and the throne of righteousness is established. So after the judgment, verse 7 and 8 says, But the Lord, 
Notice the but, the transition. But the Lord shall endure forever. He has prepared his throne for judgment, and he will judge the world in righteousness, and he shall administer judgment for the peoples in righteousness. So the rest of this 9 through 20 is really this whole thought of the Lord establishing judgment before he can establish mercy and his kingdom. So we'll read 9 through 20, but I want to come back with this thought of establishing the kingdom and um, um, clear up uh, a couple misconceptions here. So verse... Nine, pick it up there. The Lord also will be a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in times of trouble. And those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. The Lord said, you'll find me. Anybody who's got an open heart, he says, you'll find me if. Here's a big condition, big little, big little word, if. You'll find me if, if you do it with your whole heart. If you're serious about finding the Lord, he'll find you. But Paul's in your court. He's doing what he can. And so you you get serious with your heart with the Lord, and he'll get very, very serious with you. For the Lord has not forsaken those who seek you. Verse 11, sing praises to the Lord who dwell in Zion. Declare his deed amongst the people. When he avenges blood, he remembers them, and he does not forget the cry of the humble. Have mercy on me, David, says, O Lord, and consider my trouble from those who hate me. You who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may tell of your praises. In the gates of the daughters of Zion, I'll rejoice in your salvations. The nations have sunk down in the pit which they made. In the net which they hid their own foot, it's caught. The Lord is known by the judgment he executes. The wicked is snared in the work of his own hands. Meditation. Selah. And it's true. You know, it's the old adage, you you reap what you sow. You do it long enough, you'll get caught or you get busted. The wicked shall be turned into hell. And all of the nations that forgot God... For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the expectation of the poor shall not perish forever. So arise, O Lord, do not let man prevail. And he says, let the nations be judged in your sight. Hold on to that verse, because that's where we're going. Put them in fear of you, O Lord, that the nations may know themselves to be but men. All right, let's... um, Go over to the New Testament to Matthew chapter 25. And as we look at 9 and 10, what we have in view is the judgment of the nations. But when you get to Matthew 25, the first part of it is establishing the kingdom. And if I would put this in sort of a chronological order here. As you look at Matthew 25, I'll draw your attention to verse 31. 
when the Son of Man comes in his glory, all right, this is not, let me explain what this is not before um, we explain what it is. This is not the judgment of the great white throne judgment. This will happen 1,000 years. The great white throne judgment will take place 1,000 years after this judgment is going to take place here. It is not what we call the judgment seat of Christ that we read about in 1 Corinthians. There's a judgment seat where you and I are going to stand before the Lord and we're going to be judged. Another word for that is called the Bema Seat. And basically, what's going to be judged there, remember when the Bible says don't judge anything before the time? Well, because I don't always, <laughs> you might be doing something and, and I might judge you for what you're doing. But I can't do what God does and that's look into your heart and, and have an understanding of why are you doing that? What's your motive behind that? I don't know. I'm not God. But God is God. And he knows the motive of the heart and why we do what we do. That's why he tells us when you do do something, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Because your heavenly father who sees in secret, he'll reward you openly. But if you do your good works before men, you already got your reward. You did it in such a way you wanted a pat on the back. There you go. You got it. You got your reward. Could have had it later. So what we have in view here, number one, is not the judgment seat of Christ. Number two, it is not the great white throne judgment. Then which judgment is it? Well, it tells us. It's right before he establishes his kingdom, which is the first part of of, uh, chapter 9, the establishing of the kingdom. When the Lord does come back in his glory and the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory And the nations will be gathered together before him, and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. It's a judgment. Well, here's the scenario. We're watching the beginning of what is called the time of Jacob's trouble. I don't know if we have an answer for this one. I've watched wars come and go from 67 to 73, and... um, one 2012 that sort of nipped it in the bud for us going in Israel in 2012. Gang, this one is different. And uh, the game changer this time around is ISIS and Putin. Not necessarily in that order. And uh, listening to the news tonight, uh, they're saying, a lot of the people are saying, I, I really think we're underestimating Putin. Uh, our president today called for real tough sanctions. He's even going after um, Putin's judo partner. <laughs> I don't know if you caught that. They got pictures of uh, him doing the breaststroke and uh, pulling his kid behind a pony with a shirt off, you know, flexing his, his muscles. And, uh, and then he's got, we got pictures of him uh, flipping his judo partner. And he's, every time we put sanctions on Putin in the past, it's accomplished absolutely nothing. But they say, this time we're going to get really tough on him. Well, I look at this as, um, especially after last week he offered his assistance in the Middle East with this problem between Israel and, and the Palestinians, what they call the Palestinians. And I'm saying, what? And this is exactly what Ezekiel 38 predicts. 
It predicts an alliance with Russia. Gog and Magog is not a country, it's a title of a person, maybe a demon who's behind the the source. But he wants his national unity that where once uh, Russia had its glory, he wants that back. And I don't think he cares too much about the sanctions. So where I see this heading right now is, I don't know if this one's going to turn around and sort of back off like did before. This could be the freight train that actually brings in the whole scenario of the um, Ezekiel 38 equation. And um, um, I say that carefully, but yet that's the way I see this one unfolding. And that should um, cause us really to perk up and really understand the times in which we live in. Remember it says in Hebrews, when you see these things begin to happen, right? then make sure you're doing um, the work of the Lord more, not less. And uh, so real admonition. So when the Lord does return, it'll be after the seven-year period of time called the Great Tribulation. It's also called the time of Jacob's trouble. Um, Judy and I were talking about it last night, and I was, we were talking about actually two-thirds of the people in Israel are going to be destroyed before this is all over. It's going to be worse than the Holocaust. And um, uh, she was surprised to hear that. She didn't know where, where that actually fit in. But that's why they call it the time of Jacob's trouble. So this is unfolding. I can't change what I just said. That's going to happen. Um, the Lord's going to get directly involved with this battle that comes down with this Ezekiel 38 battle. And I can tell you that five-sixths of the Russian troops aren't going to make it home. Only one-sixth of them is going to return. So we have the numbers. Two-thirds of the people living in Israel aren't going to make it through the Great Tribulation period, the time of Jacob's trouble. It's going to be worse than the Holocaust. And five-sixths of the invasion that comes in, the Lord says he's going to take them out personally. And he's going to do it for one reason. In the book of Ezekiel, the reoccurring phrase is, then they will know that I'm the Lord. It occurs 54 times. And especially in chapter 38, when they see God directly involved with the salvation, just like he did it in the plagues in Egypt, where he he manifested his glory, where the world could see it. That's where that phrase really applies. Then the world and Israel will know. Then they'll know that there's a God in heaven and you're messing with his people. So we've gone through this terrible period of time. Now it's over. Isaiah 63, we were there last Sunday, I think. Is it really that late? I can't believe it. You gotta be kidding me. We're not even through with 10? Oh, I'm in trouble. That's okay. When Sunday's text only is an eight. I'm safe. <laughs> oh, man. Well, we'll get through this part anyway. As we look at verse 31, it's not the great white throne judgment. It is not the judgment seat of Christ. It's after the great tribulation when Jesus returns and puts his foot again on the Mount of Olives. Isaiah 63 is, who is this who comes from Basra with his robe stained with blood? I'll tell you who it is. It's Jesus. Why is he going to Basra? Because in Revelation 12, that's where the remnant, that's where they run to, that's where they flee to. 
They flee to Jordan. They flee to Petra. Basra is Petra. And the reason he goes there is he told them, you won't see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They call out on the Lord and he comes. So now that he's here, he puts an end to the the fighting with one word. The sword goes out of his mouth. Battle of Armageddon is over. And now we have people who are still alive. The kingdom is about to start. We have a problem. We have people who are still alive that took the mark of the beast. We have people, the context here is often quoted by missionaries. It's often quoted for Christians to make sure you're doing good works. It's out of context. Let's put it in context. So we read in verse 33, what is this judgment? You have believers and non-believers alive at the end of the tribulation, and Jesus is going to separate the sheep from the goats. It's a completely different judgment. Verse 33, and he will set the sheep on the right hand and the goats on the left, and the king will say to those on the right hand, come you blessed of my father, inherit the king, kingdom prepared for you from the foundations of the world. My Bible actually says you're the judgment of the Gentiles. And they're going to be judged on how they treated his brethren. Verse 35 says, For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. And I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And the righteous, and they, now the context is the people who are alive at the end of the tribulation. The righteous will answer him and say, Well, Lord, when did we see you hungry, and when did we see you thirsty and not give you a drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and come to me? And Jesus is going to say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, as as much as you did it unto one of the least of these my brethren, And this is where clarification needs to come in. We're not talking about people that are saved or not saved. He is talking about Israel in particular. That's the context of this. How did you treat Israel? How did you treat my brethren? Then, um, uh, and the king will answer and say to them, assuredly, that the way you did it to the least of one of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. These are still his people, and he still has a plan for his people. And then he will say to those on his left hand, I think of these groups, these terrorist organizations that are motivated by demonic powers to take out Israel. Depart from me, cursed, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and the angels. Again, the context here is a judgment at the end of the great tribulation before the kingdom can end um, there will be people who are just like you and me uh, humans that didn't take the mark of the beast that will enter into the kingdom that way on the other hand if you were against Israel during this time now that's who we're addressing verse 42 I was hungry and you didn't give me any food I was thirsty and you gave me no drink I was a stranger, you didn't take me, and naked, and you did not clothe me, and in prison, and you did not visit me. And they will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked 
or sick in prison and not minister to you? And he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, it is much as you did it not to the least of these. Uh, you did not do it unto me. He's talking about Israel. The context is Israel. The whole last seven um, years and, and the book of Revelation is about Israel, not the church. And these will go into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into everlasting life. So as we end tonight, um, we've made it through a whopping two chapters, <laughs> but I get credit for 10 because they go together. <laughs> so three chapters, and uh, that's just fine because um, um, really what, what I want to take off on and make you aware of is especially Psalm 8 as you go out tonight. Jesus says the book in your hand that you have in your hands tonight, it's all about him. You know, and, and as we go through the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, here we are in Psalm 8, and Jesus says, oh yeah, by the way, that, that verse about um, uh, the little children, uh, praise comes forth from them, it comes from Psalm 8, it was fulfilled in Matthew 21. The volume of the book, it's all about Jesus. Amen? Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, thank you for your word tonight. <clears throat> and as we sort of trudge along here, Lord, we thank you for the hope that we have as believers that your kingdom is coming and we'll be able to sing and praise you and say, oh Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. We know that that pertains yet to the future when you will have dominion over this entire planet. The New Testament tells us you've won the victory but you haven't. We don't yet see all things under your control. But we thank you for the hope, as we've always prayed, Lord, for your kingdom to come and your will to be done. And so we pray for that tonight. And in closing, we pray for your people. We want to be on the side that blesses Israel. For your word tells us that you will bless those who bless them. And you will also curse, as we see in Matthew 25, and bring judgment upon those who treat your brethren uh, that way. So, Lord, bless your people as we go out tonight. Thank you for your word in Jesus' name. Amen.